Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. Shiloh Brooks in the University of Colorado at Boulder. And I'm Jeff Black from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. So we are completing our read-through of Xenophon's The Anabasis Osiris. We have come to book seven, the last book. Jeff is going to give us a brief summary of the book, and I'm going to ask an opening question. Thanks, Brian. This is a hard book to summarize. Um, the way I thought I'd go into it is just to read the beginning of the book, because Xenophon has this practice of giving summaries of the story as it's gone so far. And the summaries don't always capture exactly what's happened, but they often give us a little structure to think about uh, what's happened and what's going to happen in the case of the last book. So here's the beginning of book seven. What the Greeks did in their ascent with Cyrus up until the battle, what they did on their journey after Cyrus met his end until they reached the Pontus, that's the shores of the Black Sea, what they were doing as they were going out of the Pontus region on foot and by sailing until they were outside of its mouth in Chrysopolis in Asia has been made clear in the foregoing account. So Xenophon thinks that the book so far has had three big parts. Going to war with Cyrus up to Cyrus's death, uh, marching in hostile territory until they see the sea, the sea and then going along the sea in the direction of Greece, uh, right to the mouth of um, Asia Minor there and the uh, edge of the Mediterranean um, with an eye to somehow getting home. And uh, those three parts have had very different characters. Uh, the part where they're with Cyrus, it looks like they don't know exactly what they're heading for. They don't know that the plan is to overthrow his brother and to take the crown of Persia from him. Uh, when they are marching up country and they're under hostile fire, they know that the goal is to survive. It's a situation of necessity. And it looks like Xenophon is able to lead them pretty well in that setting. And then when they're headed um, along the banks of the Black Sea, uh, headed back towards Greece, back west, um, internal problems start to dominate. And the question, like uh, questions of justice come up and uh, accusations of, of blame are leveled at Xenophon. And uh, now that we're um, back uh, right at the mouth of uh, Asia here, right at the edge of Asia and Greece, um, you'd think that uh, we would be back in a situation where uh, leadership might be more possible. Uh, for one thing, it looks like uh, the army is in a very terrible situation. The Lacedaemonians don't want them. And that means they don't want them on the north side of the Bosporus. They don't want them on the European side. Um, but it's hostile territory on the Asian side. And Pharnabazus, the local governor, doesn't want their army there either. And uh, the army has nothing to do. It's going to disintegrate of its own accord if uh, somebody doesn't take things in hand. So it looks like a very dangerous situation. It's a situation where survival of the army uh, individually and collectively is at stake again. Uh, it looks like a situation where leadership should be possible because there are necessities. And what does Xenophon want? He wants to leave. He tells us he wants to leave the army from the very beginning of the book. He wants to get out of there as quickly as possible. And why he doesn't leave is interesting. Uh, the army basically um, uh, goes back and forth on the two sides of the Bosporus, the European side and the Asian side, where they face threats on both sides. First, uh, uh, 
uh, Xenophon tries to ally the army with the Lacedaemonians, but they're not interested. And then he allies the army with this um, uh, Asian uh, local warlord named Suthis. And he seems interested, but he doesn't seem trustworthy either. And throughout, Xenophon is thinking of how to get away, and his life, almost in every chapter, uh, is uh, in danger, arguably in greater danger than it's been throughout the whole story. Um, and then finally, Xenophon gets away, and there's this little coda where he and some of his friends from the military attack um, a private person, a Persian man, uh, a wealthy Persian man, while he's traveling. And they raid him, and with some difficulty, they steal his stuff. And that's the end of the story. It seems disappointing, sad maybe, perplexing. Um, how are we going to make sense of this? So we need a question. I think that's what we need. <laughs> so what's our question, guys? Uh, so my question is something like, what's the difference between a military leader and a political leader? And you can take that in a bunch of directions. We could add a word to that. What's the difference between an effective political leader and an effective military leader? Um, but I don't know if we need to use that phrase. Um, it might be helpful to specify what we're measuring. Um, but the differences in and of themselves might be interesting. And something Shiloh brought up before we started recording is, and Jeff mentioned in his intro, is the who's been in charge and what have the characters um, or who have the characters been, you know, in these different portions, you know, we have Cyrus, uh, with Xenophon, uh, in some role early on as kind of two main characters, but then we get, you know, Artaxerxes and Tissaphernes. Uh, and now, you know, after Xenophon has led the Greeks through that middle portion of the book, uh, and there's been, you know, plenty of hubbub about the leadership. Now we have these two characters, Suthes and Heraclides, that seem to harken back to Artaxerxes and Tissaphernes a little bit. So we're kind of seeing maybe these political archetypes that kind of do some military stuff too. But then we also have these, I don't know if you'd call them purely military leaders, um, like Xenophon, that are just leading the army and trying to figure out how to survive the situation they're in. So... It just seems interesting, and it, it, it raises a lot of questions from my own kind of personal experience in the military. Um, you know, the kind of people that politic when they're in the military uh, and the people that try to lead. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out a little bit, like, what is the difference between these characters specifically in the book, but then these, you know, archetypes in a more broader sense. That's good. I, I like this very much. And, and you, so you ask about the difference between military and political leadership. And I wonder if we shouldn't start off by trying to give typologies of each. I mean, you know, my instinct is always to start with Xenophon and to say somehow he's both. <laughs> but I can't tell you why he's both. He's like the arch, he's like the archetype of both. He's the ideal of both. Um, uh, but you have people who are not. And so I guess maybe we could start... Um, by analyzing Xenophon's, um, sp some of his speeches in this book or, or thinking about how his strategy changes as a leader. Uh, one of the things that we noticed was that Xenophon becomes really moralistic in his speeches. In some of the speeches, he seems to, to try to tell his interlocutors that he's morally superior to them. 
and it's just obvious. And they sort of agree at the end, and you know, he, he's really effective. And so um, I don't know if that's a political art uh, showing itself, but I'm 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 curious to dig deeper into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it occurred to me as a criterion, and I think this would agree um, with your the project you're proposing, Shiloh. Um, it occurred to me as a criterion to suggest this distinction that the political leader is in it for himself, for his own gain, and the military leader is in it for the the gain of the soldiers or associates the soldier's gain with his own gain. And I'd be inclined to think that that distinction between the political and military leader occurs um, in a defective condition. In other words, in the good condition, the leader is out for the gain of others or associates the gain of others with his own gain. And that would be a good political and military leader. So that would be the ideal situation. But here we see um, a divergence between the two things because we're really dealing only with um, defective political leadership or with a military leader who has, for some reason, given up on broader political aspirations. That would be Xenophon's case. So we've we've descended from a kind of peak, and now we're looking at um, uh, you know a, a kind of defective condition. But that would be the distinction I'd suggest, and I think I think it would be well worth looking at um, some speeches. So maybe I can propose one that we could look at, which is um, in chapter two, I think, um, and this is where oh no wait it's in chapter one. There's so many different chapters. I got the wrong one. Uh, this is where. Um, uh, what's happened is the um, Greeks have been brought across to Byzantium on the uh, Greek or European side of the um, divide between Europe and Asia. And uh, they've been brought there with the promise of pay, but then they've been told uh, that they have to go out of the city um, and they have to be counted. And I think the rumor has gone around or even it's been told to them that they'll be dispersed. Um, or that they're going to be compelled to march and uh, go seek their own provisions. In other words, they're not going to be supported by Byzantium and they're not going to be paid right there. And so it looks basically like a a project to um, uh, destroy the army. And it's a project being executed by the Lacedaemonian governors of the place, the um, admiral of the navy and the governor of Byzantium. And uh, a couple things happen. Uh, the first thing is the soldiers um, revolt, and uh, they invite Xenophon to uh, lead them in sacking the city. And there's this great um, remark that I think is very revealing. Um, this is chapter one uh, of book seven, uh, paragraph 21. Uh, the rioting and the governor has escaped in a fishing boat. Um, When the soldiers saw Xenophon, many raced up to him and said, Now it is possible for you to become a man, Xenophon. You have a city, you have triremes, you have money, and you have men in such numbers. And by the way, the have here is if the army sacks Byzantium. So uh, have is a bit exaggerated at this moment. Now then, if you should wish, you would benefit us and we would make you great. And so it looks like there's a common good, according, according to these soldiers, between Xenophon and them. And he can finally be a man. Just lead them to sack the city. 
And then shortly after this, there is the long speech, one of the first of the long speeches that Xenophon gives, uh, beginning at 25, uh, that has the character that Shiloh uh, just described. So what, what do we think of this moment? Um, should Xenophon have cooperated with uh, the army or, or encouraged his troops to sack the city? And uh, does he give a good speech to discourage this sort of thing? I think this does, you know, this this is a great thing to point out, or a, a good passage to point out that difference, right, between the political and the military mm. leader, because it seems like that the troops are looking at this like when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So, you know, this city has what we want, money, food, shelter, and it also potentially has what they maybe suspect Xenophon wants, right, to some degree. And to some degree, Xenophon maybe does want this to start his own city, right? Yeah. Uh, so this is laid out to him, but he does the political calculation, not really a military calculation. I don't, I don't read anything in here that says we can't do it militarily, but mm. he's looking at the political ramifications of taking the city, and he says we will be declared enemies of the Lacedaemonians and their allies, so he can kind of step back and look at the big picture and say, this actually doesn't make sense politically, even if it does make sense militarily. And so it's interesting that this is the first speech that we get. And so I'm wondering something like, is this, is this also what's introducing kind of a rift between the troops and Xenophon? Uh, or, mm -hmm. or at least re there's been rifts before, but at least reinforcing that there is some difference in opinion between the soldiers and assumedly some of the captains uh, and Xenophon at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I do think the accusation that um, Xenophon uh, has not yet become a man uh, is probably an indication that he's lacking in something like courage, according to the the soldiers. And so, yeah, I think there is a pre-existing rift. It's a little hard uh, in part because maybe I don't remember the details of the earlier books as well as I should to put my finger on exactly what um, behavior from him would have been uh, a sign of, of lack of courage. But maybe it's been past reluctance to um, seize property Right. Remember, Xenophon was very uh, carefully trying to enforce the distinction between legitimate military forays to get food to support the army and raiding. And that distinction has been breaking down over the past few books. And maybe the soldiers, they see that and they think, you know, he, he kind of lacks um, what it takes, hard-headedness. Um, when your situation is bad, you need to be ready to do whatever is necessary. Yeah. And I wonder, too... Um... I mean, what you say about the manliness, I had not noticed that. That's um, that's quite interesting to me. I mean, Xenophon, I, I would, throughout the book, shows a reluctance to exploit anybody, you, you know, whereas the, a, a true man might even exploit his own friends. Xenophon seems unwilling mm -hmm. to do that. But I wanted to go back to this, you know, the, the thrust of this speech, Jeff, because you set us up by saying, um, I think this is right, that the, the political leader would be interested in, would have would would have self-interest. He would he, his actions would be done out of self-interest. And so, if this is the first speech of Xenophon, this speech and and the uh, things that he says in it m must be 
by your definition, uh, uh, must have in their background his own self-interest. And so it's, it's not, and I'm wondering, therefore, in what way is deciding what he decides uh, to do here in his self-interest? Because by the end of the book, Xenophon is going to be on the brink of being stoned. <laughs> you know, right. and it's certainly in his self-interest. I mean, you can, it's just naked at that point to to do what he does to save himself. He's saving himself. He's saving his own hide. I mean, that's his self-interest at that point. So, is it possible that the book shows a gradual progression of the self-interest of Xenophon all the way to chapter eight, where he's he's like taking he's he doesn't have any money, and some guys are buying his horse back, and he needs to get some money, and so he's sort of capturing this other guy and taking their stuff. I mean, you know, um, I guess I'm just trying to understand in what way this speech is the first and therefore the beginning um, of this pursuit of xenophontic self-interest that we have not seen uh, throughout uh, the rest of the book, mm-hmm. or at least rarely. Yeah. Well, the one thing that does occur to me on that score is he really wanted to leave. Yeah. Um, he wanted to sail away prior to this, um, and he's persuaded um, to stay by the Lacedaemonian governor, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, it's Anaxibius bade him depart only after first crossing back over with the others, right? So only after bringing the um, army onto the Byzantine side. Um, yeah, it's it's funny. If he gets away by himself, I don't think that he's in a simply secure situation. Um, he's been at the head of a um, military unit that has caused a lot of trouble for the Persians, who are nominal allies of the Spartans right now. And the Spartans, the Lacedaemonians, rule Greece right now. His city is a subject city. So it does look like even if he were simply to leave, um, his life might be at risk. Um, But he does want to sail away. Um, But it's clear to me that as long as he stays in theater here, um, he is only uh, safe so long as he's at the head of a big military unit that has um, integrity, that can hold together. Um, If that military disappears and he's still in Asia Minor, he's a dead man with no protection, right? And nobody's going to take him seriously. Nobody will will return his calls, right, if he doesn't have 10,000 troops behind him. So yeah, it's very much in his self-interest that the army hold together. And it's very much in his his self-interest that his army not make the enemies that Brian listed basically the whole known world yeah, as their enemies. And um, so this, I, this leads then to, I, I see what you're saying now, because what it does is it makes sense of what happens in chapter two, which is when um, Xenophon is is uh, called by, I believe it's Anaxibius, to reassemble the army and lead them into Asia. And, um, and, and so... There's this threat that the Greeks, if they come back, will be sold into slavery, I think. Is that mm-hmm. right? And so this yeah, causes right. Xenophon to go to Suthes. And this then sets up the rest of the book um, because Xenophon goes to say, hey, man, Suthes, we will serve as your mercenaries. Because, and this is helping me make sense of, of Suthes' role in the book because, to, to my mind, this goes back to Brian's opening question, he's inferior. Uh, and this comes out in his refusal or is being persuaded later in the book by Heraclides not to pay the full salary of the soldiers. And Xenophon goes to him and persuades him 
with the Lacedaemonian arms, you know, behind him, it's like, look, you got to pay this money, man. <laughs> you know, you got to do this. And I'm a really good man and a decent human being. And you've also made me look awful in the eyes of the soldiers. And so then he turns to the soldiers and he's like, look how decent I am. And this, you know, and so it's just this extraordinary, I mean, it's just, it's like a maestro playing a symphony, but it's, it's sort of set up here. If you're right, that Xenophon needs the army, that he needs to remain in theater for his own self-interest, and he needs to manufacture in a certain way a, um, you know, uh, a military conflict. I wonder how much this is a book about the education of Xenophon. You know, we talked about that the book that we read before, The Education of Cyrus, and I'm actually, I think... I think I read something that Education of Cyrus was written after this, that this was like his first work um, and that he wrote The Education of Cyrus afterwards. And I kind of wonder how much this is, you know, has Xenophon learned and grown, you know? Is, mm-hmm. is, is he a sitcom Seinfeld character where it's like there's no learning, <laughs> there's no growing, and there's no hugging? Um, or is he kind of learned something, you know, across this, this campaign? And I mean, I think you can make the the argument that he has, but he's, I wondered, learned just more about himself. Because I don't know mm-hmm. if Xenophon could be any other way than how Xenophon is. I don't know if he mm-hmm. could change that dramatically. Um, you know, I think we see him uh, do inaction, if that's a phrase that makes sense. Because uh, I'm thinking about mm-hmm. back to book two, when Clearchus takes over the army, and you know, says, okay, we're just going to go to Tissaphernes camp without our arms. And, you know, (laughs) they all get beheaded. And there's also, I was flipping back to chapter six in book two to kind of just kind of glance at it. And it's, he does a whole three paragraphs about this dude, Menon, the Thessalian. That's the one, yeah. Who is just terrifically unjust, uneducated, total con artist. Um And it looks like that, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm reading this wrong, because this is, you know, several months ago that we did this, but Menon was part of, let's see, Menon was part of the Greek troops, right? Or the Greek generals. Mm -hmm. Um, And whereas the rest of the generals were just beheaded, Menon was tortured for a year because Mm -hmm. he was just an awful, awful person. And so... Yeah, yeah. Tissaphernes just wanted to make him suffer for an entire year before he killed him. Yeah, yeah. So, so they say, right? So they Xenophon's say. not sure that that yeah. happened, but they say that Mina was tortured for a hundred years. Yeah, and Mina would be a good example of somebody who looks like he was setting out to um, uh, make military decisions on the basis of what would advantage him in particular. He was the one who um, ordered his troops to be the first to cross a certain river. Um, once it became clear that Cyrus was going after um, his brother, um, you know, to show support for Cyrus. And he reasoned something like, well, if we're the first and nobody follows us, he'll reward us. And if we're the first and everybody follows us, he'll reward us too. Win-win situation uh, for me, <laughs> Mino, as a leader. So yeah, he uh, he's a good example, I think, of the kind of... Um, leader that seems to me pretty much to dominate the end, uh, with the exception of Xenophon to some extent. Um, but yeah, we're, we're in a funny period. I, I guess the way I'd phrase it is this, and tell me whether this makes sense. Um, 
how is it going to end? Like, how do you end something like this? And maybe that's actually a question for any political career. How does it end? Um, do you die in harness, right? Does somebody kill you? Um, is there a way to get out of a career like this gracefully and then live as a private citizen afterwards? If the answer is no, because anything you do that's worthwhile means you're in permanently, you can never get out, to use that phrase that the movies like to use, you know, there's always one more job or something like that. Um, that might be a, a, something defective about the political life. Um, that it has no graceful exit strategy. Um, but that seems to be Xenophon's problem here. How, how do we get out of this? Well, I wonder if, uh, is, I think it's Richard III um, has the line, I think, in the last act, which is, blow wind, cry rack, at least we die with harness on our back. That, yeah. that, that the, the life of war becomes such a part of who you are that you can't imagine anything but that, you know, and we see that at the end of this where the army kind of just sticks around and like says, okay, let's, let's fight some more. Um, mm -hmm. And so Xenophon actually wanting it to end, actually wanting it to leave points to something that he has not fully become a military leader of some kind, right? He has not become the Clearchus that would rather walk into a trap and get beheaded than, um, you know, just continue to fight, to continue to, to die with harness on his back. Um, that something is not attractive about that as his identity or, you know, the path that he's trying to follow. Mm. Yeah, I would have been inclined even to flip it around and say, um, Xenophon is the one who's actually looking for some kind of exit strategy that is not either impoverish the soldiers or have them die in battle, right? Because those seem like the two options from the Spartan side, at least. There's this military force, and don't forget, it's, it's majority Spartan and Spartan allies that compose this force. And the Spartan view on it is, first, that it's disruptive, it's a power that nobody likes, and so we need to disperse it, but what does it mean to disperse it? It's costly, we can't pay them, disperse it means destroy it. Or it becomes useful, we need it back to battle. There's no um, third way, either die with swords in your hands or die without swords in your hands. Um, Xenophon looks like he's really struggling to find another way. And to some extent he does, he's able to benefit some of his uh, friends and allies from the military by the end, but in a very questionable way. Can, yeah, so can we be clear on exact, because the story is hard to follow, as we pointed out in, in this book, uh, toward the end, there are things. So he, he manages to get the salary, to get a salary for the Greek army from Suthes for serving as Suthes' mercenary army, where Heraclides had constantly held back that salary, and maybe had even stolen it. Of course, Xenophon is accused of stealing um, throughout this book. And so, so Xenophon, by a, some extraordinary moral and rhetorical gymnastics, gets Suthes to pay the salary uh, to the soldiers, the rest of it. He had paid a small percentage of it. So I think that's one thing that happens. Correct me if I'm wrong on this. Mm -hmm. No, you and, got it. It's about a third of what they were owed. Yeah, and then he gets the... He pawns the army off, not pawns them off, but attaches them to the Lacedaemonians. 
He, mm-hmm. you know, he, they have a mission to go and, and assist the Lacedaemonians. Uh, and, and so, so he gets rid of, of the army uh, from his own charge. Mm-hmm. And now he's at a place where he has no money and not even a horse. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? mm-hmm. And uh, some friends buy him a horse. And then he undertakes toward the end some sort of um, bounty hunter mission. Mm-hmm. And gets a little bit of uh, of coin, and now has a horse and some money. I mean, it's it's like a movie or something, and he can he can now yeah. head home. But yeah. he he mentions in this context that he was unaware of his exile at this point, and so he's mm-hmm. still under the impression um, that he can go back. And and so and and how you know it'd be interesting. I just I I just gave you an account of of where the book ends, but then the middle, the the, the white part of the Oreo cookie is still to mm-hmm. be discussed because that's where he does these extraordinary things where he's hated by both sides, Jeff. I think you pointed this out. And he becomes celebrated in a way by both sides. And not only that, Suthi's asked him to stay. He says, mm-hmm. um, would you, come on, man, would you stay with me? I think he realizes, man, I need this guy. And, and yeah. you know, Suthi's has been bad-mouthing him and saying, you know, well, he's a lover of the... He's he's a lover of the soldiers, but by the end of it, Suthis is like, "You got to stay with me. It's going to be really bad news for you if you don't." And Xenophon mm-hmm. doesn't stay, and so this mm-hmm. seems to me to be there's something going on in in uh, the middle that we should discuss. But with respect to the end, um, did he, in fact, in in the in the in the judgment of, of you guys, did he find a graceful exit from the political life given what I've said? I mean, it's, it's it's gonna take it in a weird direction, but as strange as as strange as this may seem, I just finished reading uh, Sebastian Younger's latest book, Freedom. Um, oh, and it was quite interesting. And Younger's written a lot about um, Afghanistan and people in the military and and that kind of thing. And um, he talks about the propensity of violence for young men. That, that this is just everywhere in kind of human history, if you just look at unmarried men, that they are, you know, young unmarried men are terrifically violent. And so it seems like the only thing that changes that is getting married and having some kids. And that mm-hmm. men will chill out quite a bit as soon as that happens. And so I wonder if on some level, the way to exit that military life is simply to like become a dad that you have other priorities that happen sometimes unplanned, you know, that, Oh, I'm a dad. So I got to change this up, but that you can't, Mm -hmm. uh, that without that, you still might have this propensity to be a violent young man. Uh, Mm -hmm. and so I wonder how much militaries kind of happen to happen, uh, because you have all these young unmarried men with a propensity of violence and have to put it in some direction. Um, but also that without something like that, without some kind of purpose, and I'm, this is more just personal for me and getting out of active duty and just being like, what am I doing? Like, what? <laughs> I guess I'll just go to St. John's or something. Like, you know, mm-hmm. maybe that'll help me figure it out. Um, but yeah, that rudderless, you know, piece of your life when you are no longer a military leader. Uh, what do you do, especially if you still maybe yeah. have these violent urges, uh, you know, from right. Romeo and Juliet and Westworld, you know, these violent delights have violent ends. Um, yeah. So, yeah, just on a, you know, this is still a human being, even though it was 2,500 years ago. So 
what's going on in his head. And, and I think that that kind of explains the bounty hunter thing to a certain degree. Um, mm-hmm. I used to, just as another little weird personal side note, um, I moved to D.C. in 2006 and was just, you know, in kind of an interesting neighborhood. And, uh, you know, there was, you know, some violence and some drugs and that kind of stuff kind of in the general area. And for the first time, like, in my life in the U.S., I started carrying a gun, even though it was completely illegal to do so in D.C. But, you know, that is what I knew. And that's what mm-hmm. brought me a certain degree of comfort was, you know, having the ability to what I thought was defend myself, but really inflict violence. And luckily I never had to do it. And luckily I didn't, luckily I didn't yeah, get caught. Yeah. But like um, there is, there was some propensity for me of, okay, I'm out of the military. I'm a little rudderless right now. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to, you know, get to the next act. Um, but having a gun seems to help on some psychological mm-hmm. level with me dealing with that. So mm-hmm. zooming out way too far and, and doing way too much personal hagiography there. But, um, you know, I try to trying to relate to Xenophon a little bit as a fellow human being here. Yeah, no, that that's really helpful. Sorry, Shiloh, did you want to go ahead? No, I just was going to say I thought it was helpful, too, because now I yeah. want us I want us to engage in base speculation, uh, <laughs> which is to say, what is it that Xenophon wants to get back to? I mean, mm-hmm. he doesn't seem as rudderless as you were. He, he seems to want to get back like he's got something he wants to get back to and something he wants to do or be or become or see or something. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just yeah. curious if if you if if we have any sense for the urgency with which he wants to get out and go and do something else what that something might be well i i can kind of dump the puzzle pieces on the table i'm not sure i can put them all together to my satisfaction but i think these are the relevant considerations um so shiloh uh, these are some of them they might not be all of them because i might not remember all of them but shiloh mentioned that um Suthis had offered to xenophon the possibility that he could stick around with a thousand hoplites and the response was not possible. Um, and I think that what that means is uh, a small force like that with Xenophon at the head is just going to get crushed. All Suthis has to do is wait till he's got enough money. He hires another mercenary force and gets rid of the first mercenary force. Um, so Xenophon's aware. He's kind of running, I think, in the back of his head. How many men do I need in any given situation in order to um, survive? All right, so that's calculation one. Calculation two, remember Xenophon has a pile of money that he's supposed to give to Artemis. Uh, When he says he has no money, uh, he has no money of his own. He has this pile of money that's owed to Artemis. He cannot travel alone, not just because he's going to get whacked, but because he's got this pile of money. So whatever his exit strategy is, it's got to involve some soldiers going with him until he can get to wherever he considers himself to be safe. I don't think we see his safety ever depicted in the book. Third thing, other than this money, he's broke. He's so broke he had to sell his favorite horse, right? Which is the horse that's gifted back to him by the, by the friends. Um, so how is he going to keep enough soldiers with him to protect this big pile of money that he owes to Artemis that he's got to travel back to Greece with as he leaves uh, his situation in Asia Minor. I think what he's got to do is he's got to make some money to benefit the troops who stick with him until he's safe. Now, 
Uh, it's morally objectionable to attack civilians if you're in the military. At least it is now. Uh, the Persians were at war with the Lacedaemonians, I think, by the time that uh, the raid happens in the last chapter, right? That's one of the background developments over the last book is that they're allies, but the alliance breaks down um, into open hostility. So I think that's the calculation. Xenophon knows he needs um, a few troops to accompany him all the way home. He's got nothing except this nest egg for Artemis that he's probably figured out how he could also benefit from because he and the goddess might have a common good. Um, but uh, he needs to figure out how to fund the military support. Um, and the answer, I think, is, yeah, um, have them do what they're still good at doing. Have them do it in a slightly more defensible way than pillaging Byzantium. Uh, and use the proceeds to benefit the people who support you. And I suppose politically it doesn't look bad that he's attacking a Persian. I mean, for, you know, because he's, you got to remember, he was allied with the Persians, and that would not have made the Athenians happy, um, and now the Spartans either. And so it looks good to, to have on your record. Also kidnapped Persian leader, you know, mm. uh, recently. Um, so that might be prudential calculation too and i'm just wondering though do you think at this point he has in mind um becoming xenophon i mean i mean you see what i mean is he yeah like well, i mean so he does this and jeff you give a nice account of the instrumental uh instrumental means but i guess my question still is for the sake of what now you could say well for the sake of life but xenophon's not a man who just wants to live mm. and so i'm just wondering if there's something in him that wants to get back because presumably the Xenophon we're dealing with is, has not written the Anabasis or the education of Cyrus or hunting with dogs or the memorabilia yet. And so is there something in him that, that wants to get back to become Xenophon? You know what I mean? And um, it would be breaking the fourth wall in a way because he's writing this book as the Xenophon that he was when he became the Xenophon we know talking about the Xenophon who was not yet that Xenophon, <laughs> if that makes mm -hmm. any sense. And so I'm just trying to see what he wants me to see as a reader with the knowledge of the fact that he was the man who wrote this book, yet also the man who engaged in its exploits. Um, mm -hmm. What am I to learn and what questions am I to raise beyond the instrumental um, successes of his uh, great military and political prudence? Mm -hmm. I also just mentioned that just from a literary device, <clears throat> it is interesting to me that it's Artemis that uh he has the the funds for right who was the, a, a chaste god she was she was a virgin god and and mm -hmm. there's you know s relatively frequent notice of uh you know boy lovers of women as prizes um and i don't remember xenophon ever being that ever being mentioned as something that xenophon chased after or received like i don't remember him ever receiving boys or women or anything like that so it's just curious that he is holding this money for artemis you know the chaste god and and he has a certain degree of chastity throughout the book which may just be like you know editing to, to make himself sound better but it's also curious yeah he he um 
we've seen instances of his friendship with the very young um, soldiers and other uh, people in the army and that being beneficial to him. He gets good intelligence from them, right? A crossing of one river is accomplished because he gets to hear uh, what some young people have been up to. Um, and it's, it's true that there's not a lot of um, mention of his erotic activity in a sexual sense. Um, uh, and maybe some contrast even in this book with another uh, member of the Greek military who actually saves uh, a, a beautiful young boy um, on condition that the boy will be grateful to him, right? So uh, he wants he wants a recompense for his intervention. Um, so yeah, that, uh, that I think is right. Also, Diana being the goddess of hunting, um, Xenophon um, seems to like hunting uh, a certain class um, of uh, human beings and a certain class of animals. Uh, and that looks like that's going to be part of his retirement activity. Um, so yeah, this question of how much is is foreshadowed, I think we have that um, part in book three where we hear how he did spend the money for Artemis, and that's uh, a little bit helpful. Um, there's a very perplexing reference at the beginning of chapter eight uh, to him being met by an author. Yeah. Um, and another interesting reference about the coastal area where Suthis has promised that he'll get some citadels. And apparently it's a place where Alcibiades also shacked up for a while. Um, but it's a place where there's a lot of shipwreck. And in the possessions of the shipwrecked sailors, one can find chests with books in them. <laughs> um, so there's some funny references to the um, supply of books and authors that come up in this last book that might um, indicate that something of the life he's looking toward is not just a life of pious uh, retirement of a, a former military officer, but a literary life. Um, but I don't, I don't have a sense of how strong that is, other than these hints. Yeah, I was struck by this guy, Euclides too, Jeff. I thought that is so weird, and I, I don't know. And he's the author of the household things, which is not dissimilar to a book, a very famous book Xenophon wrote called The Economicus, right? Uh, the Art of Household Management. And so you got to think, well, this is a. I was immediately like, well, this is clearly a man engaged in philosophy. They're talking about the art of household management. Is you know, this is all making sense. We're going to the, you know. Um, uh, we're 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 going off to the philosophic life. We're being met by yeah. some sort of philosopher at the end, uh, or something right. of this nature. Um, right. But but yeah, I I, uh, I didn't know that about the shipwreck. That's uh, I, I envision these chests of loaves washing up on the, <laughs> on the shore and Xenophon opening them up, and it's the whole library or you know some some fantastical thing like that. That's anyway. right. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't believe his good fortune there in his sea tower with nobody who'll <laughs> talk to him. Yeah, yeah. So should should we, because um, we're getting close to the end, should we confront this middle part then, Suthes, yeah. and what goes well and what goes wrong there? Um, I mean, the one thing that strikes me, or maybe an initial remark would just be to say that he has the same problem with Suthes as he does with the uh, Lacedaemonians. They won't pay. This seems to be like the problem everywhere Xenophon turns. He wants to get the soldiers paid and they won't pay. How, do we have an interpretation of that difficulty? What's behind it or what's going on? Well, this this appears fairly often in kind of mercenary army stuff because as soon as you pay them, they might leave. 
you know, and it even appears in this book, right? I mean, Cyrus does the same thing in the first uh, first book or two before he dies, where he just doesn't pay him everything. He's like, "Well, no, we'll pay you as soon as we overthrow my brother and take over the kingdom. Definitely going to pay you, right. right?" And so even this, like, they do get a partial payment initially, but then there's still more, and so it almost seems like the incentive alignment. Um, is to never pay the soldiers the full amount because if you never pay them the full amount, but you like give them enough to stick around, then you know they'll keep fighting. And I'll just just because I I love that he worked it in here. I'll just briefly mention the the feast that Suthi's, um gives them in chapter three, uh, where uh, this is around twenty one. Uh, for of the leavened bread that had been skewered into the meat, for the most part, the tables were always set opposite strangers, for it was a custom. Suthus was the first to begin doing this, taking up the bread that was beside him. He would break it into little pieces and throw it over to whomever he decided, <laughs> and similarly with the pieces of meat, leaving for himself only enough for a taste. What a strange... Mm-hmm. Who throws food at their guests? <laughs> who throws scraps, you know, at their guests? I'm going like, to do like that dogs. next dinner yeah. party that yeah. I have. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's a very strange <laughs> custom. Um, but it's also little pieces, right? It's not, it's not, he's not, mm-hmm. you know, pushing a plate over so that, you know, his guest is full and then can, you know, retire with a full belly. Uh, it's just enough, you know, to, to sate a little bit of hunger, but to leave him wanting more. And so I think that mm-hmm. the same thing is going on throughout the book in terms of mercenary forces. And um, like I said, this happens a lot uh, because you want them to stick around. Can I, can I venture an interpretation of that? Um, so one of the things Suthes tells um, Xenophon when he's trying to make the case that Xenophon should come work for him is he says, oh, yeah, my dad owned this territory. And uh, I think he, he died or something like that. And then... Um, I had to live um, like a dog um, off of somebody else's table, and I didn't like it, and so I, I rebelled, and I raided my father's lands, and I'd like your help to, to take them back, right? That's something like that is the story of Suthes, um, and it sounds like a story of injustice, right? Uh, you know, you, you were owed something. Uh, it was yours by birthright. You did nothing to be deprived of it, but there was this accident and now you have to live in a shameful way off the scraps that people throw you. What kind of person could, you know, uh, bear living like that? Well, as it turns out, Suthe's employees are supposed to bear living like that, right? That he enjoys um, tossing food to them. And I, I think not because he's really hungry and he needs a lot of food for himself and he can't afford to give away the scraps. It has nothing to do with the supply of food, as far as I can tell although there are some Greeks who eat so much that they don't like the method. Uh, it's about the superiority or the inequality, right? I think he wants people to feel that they depend on him. But he hated that feeling when he himself felt it. It made him want to rebel. Therefore, it should make the other people want to rebel. When they try to rebel, he massacres them mercilessly. He yeah. puts them to the sword. He's angry at people who are exactly like him. Right. Well, 
that that's a problem isn't it in a leader <laughs> yeah and xenophon holds this against him um when he's demanding the pay from him because he says without us they would have rebelled against you and you know it and that's yeah. what's wrong with you you know and uh yeah, I mean, it is, you, you asked this before this, Jeff, um, whether getting, whether not being paid, why that was a problem, something like that. The, and this, so I'm wondering if this is connected to that or if there's something about the nature of um, justice and injustice or something of this nature that's going on in this book. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what, I don't have any more profound lessons to draw from it than that. I mean, I, I just had this guess that it's something like when you pay, you acknowledge that you are, in fact, equals. And you make another force that really is uh, equal to you or a threat uh, to you. You allow the army to continue. It's now a well-paid army. It can go wherever it wants. It can buy its own provisions, right? It's in good shape. Well, that's really hard uh, right. for some people to swallow. Uh, they need the instrument, but they don't want the instrument to liberate itself from them. Right. And that, Okay, this makes sense. Because Xenophon tells Suthes when he's asking for the salary, um, if you don't give it to us, we'll take from you. And if we mm-hmm. take from you, all your people are going to see that you can be taken from, and right. they're going to rebel from you. And so he's exploiting this. There's going to be an asymmetry. There's going to be a symmetry in the power where there had previously been an asymmetry. And I know psychologically because I've sized you up that you hate that more than anything. And so now that I'm here demanding the salary, I'm going to press on that and rub a little bit of salt in that. And then what ends up happening is that when he says that, Suthes immediately begins cursing Heraclides, and he's like, "God <laughs> damn it!" <laughs> you know, just, you know um, and 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 then says, um, "Xenophon, you should stay with me." You know, yeah. it's just yeah. it's beautiful. It's just beautifully yeah, done. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that's yeah. Well, that's good. also a, a frequent yeah. political leadership move, right? Is blame the staff. You know. <laughs> Like, like who's taken mm-hmm. who's taken the bullet for this terrible policy decision? You know, it's not going to be mm-hmm. the the person in charge. They're going to find somebody on the staff to blame. Yeah, right. And, and Xenophon takes the same strategy. I mean, by this I mean um, trying to psychologically manipulate people because he has to in the center chat. Well, six and seven, which aren't really the center, but in six, he has to do the same thing to the army, where he says to them, "Don't forget how desperate you were." when I came to you. Now you want to stone me. But it's a miracle that you got anything from Suthes at all, first of all. And second, if I wouldn't have come back to you, you would have passed the winter with no provisions and all of you would have died. And so mm-hmm. I got together with Suthes for you. And so sure, he hasn't paid you the whole thing, but you're alive, right? And so he, uh, he reminds them of how he's loved them and sacrificed them. And so he's, uh, he, this is what I meant, by the way, earlier, with Suthes and with the army, how Xenophon's speeches turn moralistic. And he, mm-hmm. he essentially tells the army, you, you hate me, um, you know, when, when, I, when we're poor and you love me when we're rich. And, mm-hmm. But what you don't see is why I make the choices that I make. So it's just an interesting, um, you know, uh, crack in the edifice of Zen- where you can kind of see through Xenophon and sort of see what exactly he's, why he's saying what he's saying and how he's saying what he's saying. Um, mm-hmm. And the other thing, just one last thing that occurs to me here is um, this chapter, more than any other, teaches this Machiavellian lesson, which is that your fortunes can revive. I've never seen a man revive fortune so much as Xenophon does. It's just constant revival of fortune. And that's, I think, in Machiavelli's view, one of the most difficult things to do, because when you are on 
a downturn in fortune, it almost feels like you're on train tracks and it's just going. And so you get ahead of yourself psychologically and you just think, well, well, it's over for me. I'm descending. And Xenophon just consistently revives his fortune and the fortune of the army over and over and over again. Um, and so in a way, this book teaches you the kind of, or at least book seven teaches you the kind of military and political psychology required to undertake that most difficult of things in politics, which is the revival uh, of your fortune. Mm -hmm. I think uh, one thing that it seems to require is um, to go with the power that you had ruled out previously. Um, so in other words, it looks like he's initially siding with the Lacedaemonians, right, trying to execute their will by moving the army to the European side and pleasing the Asians. Uh, when it looks like the Lacedaemonians are going to betray him, well, he's going to throw his lot in with uh, Suthes. When it looks like Suthes is going to betray him, he then decides to play the Lacedaemonians and Suthes off against one another, right? And, and he ends up by um, raiding the Persians. So it, it looks like, in part, um, the flexibility to change up and do something that you thought you never would do um, in your earlier estimation of the situation is, is part of that power to revive the fortunes. And I think that I connect that with Xenophon's lack of anger, because anger makes you dig in and say, oh, I'm never siding with those bastards, the Lacedaemonians, again, right? Never again. And, well, that's to close a door that might be necessary to walk through at some point. Well, we're getting to uh, we're getting to time here, fellas. Uh, so that might be a good a good time to wrap it up, unless somebody's got any other saved rounds we want to throw at this one. All right. Uh, well, we did it, guys. We've completed our ascent of the ascent. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for being on here. Uh, thanks, Shiloh. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, thanks for explaining this to me. It's um, very <laughs> helpful. Um, we are going to be doing, uh, the Iliad next, uh, dear listener. So same style. We're just going to go a book at a time. So if you want to start ahead, we're going to be off a little bit for the holidays, but, uh, if you want to do a little fun holiday reading, get started on the Iliad and we'll be cranking through that in, uh, 2022. So fellas, thanks again. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Shiloh. Take care. You too. <laughs>